Hey everyone, it's Clarissa here from the Thriving Through Menopause podcast. You know, as I talk to women around the world, I know that more than ever, we're looking for holistic ways to manage our menopause and to feel empowered that we're in control of our own health and healing during this vital life transition. I sit down each week with amazing guests to talk about ideas, strategies, approaches and opportunities to help us thrive through menopause. Episodes drop every Tuesday, so I hope that you'll join us. And I have a little request for you, that if you find value from the stories, lessons and wisdom that we share, I'd like you to support this podcast. One way you can do that is to hop on to wherever you listen to podcasts, like and subscribe and share it so that others can hear the messages too. You might want to buy me a coffee to help me keep this podcast up and running. And I'd love you to subscribe to my newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Don't forget, episodes drop every Tuesday and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of this community, listening to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the new content that's coming up in this new season. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause with me, Clarissa Christensen. We're going to have a brilliant conversation today on a topic that is ticking up, getting a lot of traction, and that I have never spoken about on this podcast before because there hasn't been anybody beyond today's guest to talk about from a women's perspective. <laughs> but what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about psilocybins and how they can be of benefit to women who are going through menstruation and menopause. And I'm super delighted to have with me Jennifer Cheese. Jennifer, it's a tricky word. Chizik, yeah. It's a tricky word. So welcome, Jen, to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you. I'm going to give a, my audience a little brief intro to you before we dive into some you know, okay. deep questions here. I mean, you are the author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, which I saw come out just a little while ago. Very exciting. And of course, you're an award-winning freelance journalist. You write a lot on science and and medical journalistic topics. And I was just saying to you before we came on the show that I see your name in other um, publications. <laughs> I'm like, now I know that it's Jen. And of course, you've had work as, as an editor, and you're also a lecturer in journalism. So fantastic, the, the work. And obviously, I'm interested because you come from a fact-based background, don't you? I do. Yes, I am a fact checker as well as a journalist. So I am dappling in facts all day. And I try to make sure that my any anything I write is extremely science and evidence based and all of that. And, so. and I think that's what makes this a, such an interesting book to talk about, because, you know, there's a lot of things floating out there about psilocybin. It's certainly becoming popular and people becoming mentors and guides and support people, all sorts of things. But, absolutely, you know. I think getting the facts on what's real and what, what the benefits could be and maybe what some of the cons might be as well is a good thing to discuss. Of course. Yeah. But maybe the first thing that I might ask is why write a book specifically for women? Yeah. And that is such a great question. And, you know, I, I, that's usually the first question people ask me. 
And I like to explain that the uh, in many cases, more women are using psychedelics more frequently than men are. And this came as a bit of a surprise to me when I started to dig into this research. I expected it to be the other way around. But what is happening, and this was not a surprise, is that there's a little bit of a difference in the way that men and women tend to use psychedelics. And I don't mean to be spot- speaking in the gender, like in binary terms. It's just that when I'm talking about this, uh, the, some of these results come from surveys where they did use the language of men and women, but I tend to uh, appreciate the language of assigned female at birth and, and such. So I will probably be using that throughout the podcast as well. But there tends to be a difference in the way that men and women tend to use psychedelics, and that is that men tend to use psychedelics a little bit more recreationally. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly fine. It's just that women tend to use psychedelics to self-treat. And they're doing so to treat conditions like uh, chronic pain, PTSD, other forms of trauma, depression, anxiety, and issues with their menstrual cycle and menopause, of course. And so um, there is, there's, uh, that, that's really an interesting fact that women are you know, turning to psychedelics to self-treat. And these, um, this, these, this information comes from the Global Drug Survey of 2020, that, those kind of stats about met women using psychedelics a little bit more frequently. But again, women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat. And it's my opinion that they're doing that because they're not getting adequate care for the conditions that they seek care for in the mainstream medical community. And I'm not against the mainstream medical community as a science and medical journalist. I, I love medicine and appreciate science, of course. But I do get a little frustrated with the way that women are often gaslit at the doctor's office and the way that women's health is really not prioritized. As an example, I have a condition um, called endometriosis that affects one in 10 people assigned female Mm -hmm. birth. Rarely it can affect the male body, but by and large, people consider it a female condition and and they classify it erroneously as a menstrual cycle condition. And that means it gets very little, um, uh, you know, attention in the industry. So for example, the National Institutes of Health designated less than 0.1% of its research funding to studying this condition. That affects the same amount of people who have diabetes, if you can, if you can imagine that. So it's just really, it's less than 0.1% from the National Institutes of Health in 2022 went to that, that research funding. It was less than 0.1%. So that's really crazy to me. And then I, you know, I always like to dig a little deeper into this and to really illustrate the gap between men and women's health and how it's prioritized. So I'll dig into that just briefly and then yeah. I'll be quiet for a second and let you talk. Yes. Um, but um, I just kind of launched into my spiel. But um, when we think about in nine, so women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until roughly 1993. And that, you know, wasn't that long ago if you think about it. So it's really absurd. And then um, in 1998, men got a drug for male sexual dysfunction. And everyone knows what that is. It's Viagra. It's a household (laughs) name, right? At that point in time, believe it or not, the mainstream medical community, let alone anyone that a woman might have been sleeping with, didn't have an adequate picture of what the clitoris looks like. So there's all this internal structure to the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't discovered until 2005 when a female, female urologist did some research on that. Then fast forward to 2015, that is when women finally got a drug for female sexual dysfunction, 17 year gap from when guys got a drug to when women got a drug for the same condition, even though it affects our bodies differently, of course, Um, it really just was prioritized 
for men. But that's pretty alarming when you think about how disproportionately uh, sexual dysfunction affects the female body. In reproductive years, it's 40 to 45 percent. And that goes up, it doubles by the time people are in perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, it goes up to 80, 85%. So why was that not prioritized for the female body? You know, it's really frustrating to me. So yeah, that's my spiel on why we need a book on, since women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat, we need a book that really gives them honest, accurate, evidence-based information. I also pull in indigenous wisdom because that's so important when we're talking about psilocybin. So we can talk about that too. Yeah, that's great. And I think you're so right. When you actually listed out, Jen, all those conditions, we know those are the ones that women over-index in. We are much more likely to have uh, stress-induced issues, traumas, one in four recorded. You know, (laughs) goodness knows what what that might really be if we actually talked about Mm -hmm. it. And, of course, chronic pain. We know women can be... Uh, dismissed up to eight times before their pain is taken seriously in a clinician. And I'm not against clinicians. We've had many, many on the show. But the fact is, as you said, there's a lot of that. And of course, as I love, I love quoting Dr. Stacey Sims when she said, we're not small men and we're not. We are different in every every way. And so it's really, really important that uh, treatments like this that are coming online, that are being going to come into mainstream medicine if they're not already there, need to be able to also be correct for women in in the way in which they're used in the dosages etc so yeah that's that's probably a good start point for both of us but absolutely one of my questions i suppose and i many of my listeners may never have used a psychedelic but how do psilocybins actually work Absolutely. That is such a great question. So uh, psilocybin is a tryptamine alkaloid. And when we when we ingest it, and you can do that in a capsule form, because a lot of people grind it up and put it into a powder and put it into a capsule. So capsule tea, even eating the mushroom itself, is, you know, people do that as well. But when we ingest it, it, um, it, it, activates our serotonin receptors. And so it, it kind of works along our stress, re- the axis that controls our stress response, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. But I think researchers have this really incredible analogy to sort of explain why would psilocybin be beneficial for people when they're dealing with certain conditions or, um, you know, especially thinking about PTSD, trauma, anxiety, depression, behavior change, all of that. Like, why is it beneficial? Why is taking this mushroom Why does it do this? You know, um, it seems very magical, but it's really rooted in a lot of science. So um, what we've learned and researchers uh, have come up with this really great model to explain it. And their their names are Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and Dr. Carl J. Fristian. And they came up with this model called the Rebus model. And that stands for Relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics. And I just love this model because it really helps us understand. But when we think about when we're, when we're young, our minds are super flexible, meaning we haven't really come up with our identities yet. We're still de- we're developing them. And we, ha- we don't really know. We haven't formulated our beliefs about how the world around us operates. So our minds are really flexible and malleable. And when we get into adulthood, that becomes much more rigid and even more so if depression or anxiety or trauma have have occurred, our brains become super rigid and we are locked into what we believe about ourselves. And often, oftentimes those beliefs are erroneous and negative, Um, not always, (laughs) but in many cases they can be. 
And same thing with the, how the world around us operate. So those can get locked in and our brains become really rigid. And so this, this is where the beautiful analogy comes in. So we can think of our brains in adulthood as almost like a frozen pond. So you've got an iced over pond. And then if you were to take a new belief, and if we think about that belief as, as a rock, and yep. meaning what I mean by a new belief, let's say we're trying to change a negative belief about ourselves or, you know, really could be anything. Yep. But you take that rock and you try to drop it on a frozen pond, it doesn't gain entry, right? Yep. Nothing happens. And if we think about when we're on a psychedelic, then our brains become almost like a thawed pond. Now we've got water. Now you take that rock in the form of a new belief. You drop it in. It gains entry. It causes a little bit of a ripple effect. And this happens because um, in as we get into adulthood, it's like our beliefs about ourselves form this hierarchy. And so if we can think of it almost like a corporate structure, right? <laughs> if we think about a corporation, you've got your CEO beliefs at the top, and then you've got your like, you know, employees who are lower on the ladder <laughs> at the bottom. And those are like the beliefs that maybe you're trying to like get up into your brain. But it just it can't happen because the CEO belie yeah. beliefs are like, no, we're not going to listen to you. You're just like, you know, uh, employees that we don't really care about. Right. And so um, when we use psilocybin or another psychedelic, that hierarchy just kind of goes away and all beliefs kind of become equal. And so a, a newer belief can really take root in your brain. So this is really beneficial for things like behavior change. You know, if we're talking about hey, I've been drinking too much in perimenopause or something, <laughs> yeah. trying to cope with feelings that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, we, can, we can lean into some behavior changes because of the way that this happened or happened. And then another concept that I love is um, it's called the helioscope effect. And this is another concept to sort of explain some of the ways that psilocybin can help us. So um, a helioscope in, in normal science, not related to psychedelics, is an instrument that scientists use to look at the sun because you're not supposed to look directly at the sun, right? It'll burn you. <laughs> and um, we can think about our trauma in the same way. So when we're in a normal state of consciousness, we tend to avoid looking at our traumas just like we would avoid like looking directly at the sun because our traumas trigger us. We they, they fuel our anxiety and our fear and our, our stress and all of that. So we avoid it. On a psychedelic, it's almost like you have this helioscope um, instrument in place where you could view your trauma from a safe distance through a filter and not be triggered. So those triggers tend to go away when you're on a psychedelic. So you're able to look at your trauma, reprocess it, and then when you're no longer on the psychedelic, perhaps kind of view it in a really different way. And I just love that metaphor. Yeah. And that was created by Dr. Gregor Hassler. He's a researcher in, I think, maybe Germany. I have to look that up. But um, great. Dr. Gregor Hassler. So two really cool concepts to sort of explain why psychedelics can be beneficial for various conditions and, and you know, mental health issues. So fascinating. So, so great, because I think we really are, as you said, we have a lot of negative beliefs. And I think particularly these come up in perimenopause, as we know, that we get very locked into our ideas about what this is like and, and, and what we're expected to suffer, if you like, and what, what can be done and what can't be done. So we can be very close and it can take a lot of work to shift those beliefs. But also, as you said, yeah. things that are difficult for us to meet, because I do believe that we are carrying all of us, quite a bit of trauma that's come through the generations 
And so obviously intergenerationally, we are carrying with this, and this must surely be one of the ways that we can meet the trauma from our own experiences and what we carry and actually maybe be able to then step through and be so much better and feel well. I love, I really love that. I mean, that's that's beautiful and, and potentially very safe ways to do this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so when we see people working, I mean, here, what you talk about is that people actually manages them themselves, or are they taking psilocybin in combination with psychotherapy? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. So if you're new to psychedelics, I would certainly encourage people to have a therapeutic experience. And that could be working with a, ther- a psychedelic-assisted therapist, and we're seeing legislation um, pop up where we've got legalization in certain states. So that is that is becoming a little bit more accessible. We have a long way to go on that. Um, but yes, a therapeutic experience would be a great idea because um, you're with a, a mental health professional to guide you if anything difficult crops up. Additionally, um, you know, after a psychedelic session, it might be the next day, but you do a lot of in- what's called integration. And integration is the really the process of learning from what came up for you during your your psychedelic experience. And so um, a psychotherapist can really be great and beneficial for integration. However, um, you know, just in keeping this really accessible, yes, you could go and have your own experience. You could work with an underground guide. You could also, um, you know, go on a retreat somewhere where psilocybin is decriminalized or legalized. And so a lot of places um, like Mexico, people go to retreats in Mexico and all over. Um, but, you know, that's also a possibility. And you can still do integration at a retreat. You can still do integration even if you have your own experience, like where you're you're doing this alone and you maybe bring in your friend as a trip sitter. Again, I recommend working with a therapist if you can yes. um, or a guide in some way. Um, but, you know, I, I always like to keep things really accessible. But even if you did a solo journey, there are integration communities all over and you can do those in person or even virtually. Um, so yeah, it's a mix of both. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's one. And of course, indigenous cultures, as we, we touched on very early, they have always used these and other forms of psychedelics to in spiritual um, ceremonies. Uh, I mean, how does the modern yes. day psilocybin differ from those? Or maybe there are similarities, I don't know. Yeah, I think in terms of the substance itself, um, you know, I don't know if there's a, a difference from um, when, you know, historically in, in indigenous communities use the substance to what it is now. I would think it's relatively similar. Um, but, you know, as long as you're using real psilocybin, there's also synthetic versions out there for that the pharmaceutical industry is creating. Um, and that would obviously not be the same as what indigenous communities are using. But it is so important to consider um, indigenous practices when we talk about psilocybin. And so I did interview an indigenous wisdom expert for the book. But, um, you know, just thinking about how, you know, the only reason we even have access to psilocybin or even understand what it is, is because of indigenous communities. And we always talk about, oh, science, we need evidence-based information. But and we, so we think of science as this process of doing something over and over again to reproduce the same result, which is true. But that's exactly what indigenous communities have been doing with psilocybin for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And so, uh, you know, bringing in that wisdom is so important. And again, just considering that it is a sacred substance. And so a lot of the practices that we have around psilocybin use 
Um, for example, set and setting is another term. I mentioned integration earlier, but set and setting are also important, meaning the mindset that you have yeah. going into a journey Close. and the setting. What, Where are you? Who's around you? That's all really important for setting yourself up Close. for the best journey possible. But those those practices or those traditions around psilocybin use really come from indigenous wisdom and really inform having a good experience. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, I think that's, that's a great way to, to get around. I love that. And I think that that obviously is, you're right. I mean, we do want to have scientific fact because I think in many countries, and certainly I live in Sweden, this is a very long way away from being accepted. And so the scientific sure. proof, the psychotherapy support is really important if we want the benefits of psilocybin and psychedelics in general to be able to come over and become globally acceptable. So, yeah. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, I mean, what is the scientific data looking like? I mean, how, how are the studies uh, coming through that are, and are the results looking promising? They are. It, it is looking extremely promising for psilocybin. In the, in the United States, um, just for example, which is where I'm based, um, we've got, uh, um, you know, we're really close on the FDA approving MDMA uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. We've already got ketamine approved for psychedelic assisted therapy. And ketamine is a little bit different than our classic psychedelics, but it's, you know, helping to pave the way. MDMA is coming next because that was further along in clinical trials and some other processes were further along. But psilocybin will come closely on the heels of, of MDMA in terms of getting FDA approval, I believe. So I think within the next um, year, maybe two years, we will have that in place. And, uh, and you know, so I'm just really, really excited about, about all of that. And the, so the studies themselves are the basis for getting that yeah. approval. And so it starts out with like early stage or, you know, preliminary research, then early stage clinical trials. And then you move into eventually phase three clinical trials, which really inform getting that approval. And so again, MDMA was further along with those phase three clinical yeah. trials than psilocybin. But now we're pretty much in the thick of it with the psilocybin uh, phase three clinical trials. And we're seeing such promising results for so many things depression, anxiety, um, lots of conditions are being studied, including eating disorders. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about all, all the information coming out in those clinical trials. That's, so, yeah, that, it's going well. That's good. And that's really, really good. And I yeah. think that those kind of trials are also happening in places like the UK and Australia. So there is an opening up. And in your right, ketamine and MDMA are definitely further down the line, ketamine is a different is a different thing. But I, I think really getting sure. this um this out there and getting the science is going to help doctors feel and psychotherapists feel that they are able to offer this genuinely to their yes. clients as an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I think we, those of us who are around the mental health community, know that there are a lot of issues with modern day antidepressives and anti anxiety medications, and so looking for alternatives is. I think super important. Yeah. And there's been very little investment so in these kinds of medications, actually, to be fair, over the last 20, 30 years. So it's great to see more natural-based things actually coming coming through. Like I that. agree. Yeah. I mean, let's turn to women's health because, sure, <laughs> mental health issues are there, but they're, they're pretty much there for everybody in many ways. But we have some right. specific things. Obviously, a lot of women, you spoke yourself that you're an endometriosis sufferer. Many women have 
PCOS, PMDD, they're very mm-hmm. common conditions that we've spoken about here on, on the show as well and obviously have their implications and complications for perimenopause and menopause. But Absolutely. What does psilocybin potentially offer for women who are still menstruating or who may be in perimenopause and, and actually still menstruating? Yeah, so that's a great question, too. And um, we're starting to get some research coming out about this, including um, with PCOS and PMDD. And uh, what researchers are learning uh, through Johns Hopkins Psychedelic Research Center is they've started to dig into like how does psilocybin potentially affect the menstrual cycle. And I'm so excited that they're doing that because I was really worried I wouldn't find any information on that. But it does appear that psilocybin likely affects the menstrual cycle and having beneficial effects. So they're, they've come up with three things that are potentially happening with psilocybin. So it may um, uh, bring back a menstrual cycle if someone's had an absence of a period, and that can happen for various conditions. I'm not talking about in menopause. I'm talking about in your reproductive years, if, you're, uh, if your period kind of disappears for a while due to stress or a condition. Um, it also may re-regulate a menstrual cycle if it's become really irregular. And then the the other thing too is to, to consider is that psilocybin may make your period come a little earlier than you expected. So I just <laughs> always like to warn people about that. And I've heard so many um, anecdotal reports from people about that, but this case study also really kind of solidified that. I mean, obviously we need more information and more studies and clinical trials, but I, um, you know, I'm really fascinated that researchers are studying this. And so Uh, I think it's important to kind of think about the mechanisms of that so that people understand. So our menstrual cycles occur along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And, you know, that that's why we have the phases of our menstrual cycles, because our brain is communicating with our ovaries. And that's why we have the the follicular (laughs) phase, then ovulation, then the luteal phase, and then you get your period, the whole cycle, you know, and then it starts all over again. Uh, when one hormone kicks off, it tells another hormone what to do. Essentially, it's really fascinating when you <laughs> dig into like why does the menstrual cycle even happen. But our um, our when we use psilocybin, um, so we also have another axis in our bodies in general that's informing our stress response, and that's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Yeah. So you know your fight fight or flight, all of that is kind of associated with that. Yeah. Um, that axis. But when you use psilocybin, you are activating your serotonin receptors along that axis. And by their names, we can tell that they overlap with the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands. So pretty much in the brain, these axes overlap. And we know from just general experiences as women having a menstrual cycle that these axes sort of interact. We can tell that when we're stressed out, that can affect our periods. When we get our periods, we might be a little bit more stressed (laughs) out. It's happened to all of us, right? And, um, you know, so then it's not a stretch to assume that when we are activating that stress response access in some way, that that may affect our menstrual cycle. So it may matter where you are in your menstrual cycle as to when you use psilocybin and um, and then vice versa, the the. Um, you know, your your menstrual cycle may impact your journey in some way because we do know that estrogen affects the binding receptor, the the ability to bind. And yes. I don't know all of the logistics of that yet. We're still studying yeah. it. But we do know that estrogen has an impact on the ability for psilocybin to bind oh, at the, um, the serotonin receptor site. Yes. So again, I'm really excited that science is kind of digging into this. 
Um, but you know, it does it does seem like we could have some promising results for conditions like uh, PCOS, which you mentioned, yes. PMDD, yes. so polycystic ovary syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Yes. And I've got, you know, there are people kind of all over doing different surveys on the menstrual cycle and psilocybin yeah. use. And we're hearing a lot of good results for PMDD, PCOS, um, and, uh, you know, just general, like managing the menstrual cycle a little bit better. As I mentioned, I did bring in indigenous wisdom into yes. this conversation. And so I interviewed a woman. Her name is Michaela De La Maico, and she goes by Mama De La Maico on Instagram. And she recommended that, you know, if you, you know, if you do have a menstrual cycle and you're trying to figure out when to use psilocybin during that cycle, she recommends doing that closer to ovulation rather than when you get closer to your period. And the reason for that has to do with like the energy that's available in our bodies. And um, from a science perspective, I'm talking about like the, our glucose and how we process and how we use insulin with our glucose and all of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she was kind of bringing up this idea of, yeah, we have less energy available to us during our as we get closer to our yeah. periods and during our periods. And so and we also have to consider that a psilocybin journey can be energy depleting in and of itself. And so we have more energy available to us towards our ovulation time. And this, again, makes sense from a scientific perspective, because that luteal phase is when our bodies actually become more insulin resistant because all the yes. glucose is sort of being shuttled to the potential baby. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Would happen. And so um, another thing to consider is that a lot of people will fast before a psychedelic journey. Um, you know, it might be yeah. just the days leading up to it or the hours leading up to it. And fasting can be a little bit more inaccessible when we get closer to our period. Yeah. So that's why she recommends um, or that's why I think I agree with the with what yeah. Michaela De La Michael said about trying during ovulation. And then a lot of people are microdosing, too. So um, just to kind of give you some context, yes. a a macro dose is when we think of like classically tripping, right? So yes, you are yes. having psychedelic effects and all of that and visuals, um, you know, lots going on there. And so we can think of that as being just like the average dose might be about three grams. Then if we think about a micro dose, that is a tenth of a gram. Wow. So a tenth of a gram would not produce psychedelic effects in terms of like visuals. You could totally be, you could go and drive on that. You're not really going to feel like you're tripping or anything like that. You'll be in your right mind. But it does have some benefit. It can have some beneficial effects on anxiety and depression. Yes. And so a lot of people are using microdosing to see how that affects their menstrual cycle. And we need more research on this because we just don't really have it yet. Um, but what Michaela De La Maico said is that, um, you know, follow whatever microdosing protocol you're going to follow. There are many out there. I do have two that I mentioned in the book. Two of the popular ones are the Fatiman Protocol and the stem at stack. And that just gives you the schedule of your microdosing. But she said to follow whatever protocol you're going to follow for three months, meaning three cycle, three menstrual yeah. cycles to see how that impacts your symptoms, maybe keep a diary. And then you'll know, do I want to switch my protocol? Is this not working for me at all? Is it having beneficial effects? Because it can be hard to tell just like when you change anything you know, it's good to track things. So that's why she recommends that. Yeah, I really like that because that might be, you know, just thinking what you're saying there, if we are having slightly irregular menstruation, then clearly it, the microdosing might help to kickstart that back into being more regular and might also smooth right. out our moods if, if yes. we do that. I mean, yes. if we are, you know, we tend to be a little bit more up and euphoric anyway around the time of ovulation, clearly because we're going to a partner, come on, come on, you know, let's make this baby. But 
obviously yes. as the body is getting ready to 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 shed the lining of the womb, then we are a bit more down. And I suppose it's, you wonder if the benefit is as much up as is, as it is. And so yeah, there's a lot of energy, and yeah, it does take energy, doesn't it, to go on a it does on a yes. psilocybin trip. So I suppose if you're already tired, you know, it might not work as well. So that makes common sense if we just think about how our menstrual cycles work. Mind you, it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's ten yeah, years, more than ten years since I had, and and lot longer since I had a regular one. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, same, I can, re- but I can remember those, you know. So yes, but I, I think there's a lot of promise because we know that these are significant issues, and women are clearly being offered, you know, contraceptive pill, which has got its own issues now. And I think we're really yeah. opening the a can of worms on that one now. And, and yes. women being, you know, have had a Mirena coiling for a long time. And these these solutions are, yeah, that's what's offered at the moment, but they're far from optimal. And, and clearly there looks as if right. there's some promise here with psilocybins as a more natural and, and manageable way for women to have a less uh, dramatic, shall we say, menstruation for many with pain yes. and a lot of significant emotional disruptions too right absolutely but then let's turn to menopause because of course my listeners are perimenopausal menopausal women and 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 we know that obviously we know that as a particular both progesterone does its crazy nosedive as it does and estrogen goes on this more prolonged decline which leads to Mm -hmm. i think you know very low moods uh, even depression, you know, we we feel we feel you know depth, or we feel anxious, and obviously that flows through to sleep issues and everything, everything else at the same time. Everything, everything. Yeah. I mean, how do psilocybins potentially help with menopause? Yeah, also a great question. I'm super excited to talk about this. So I'm also in per- I'm in perimenopause. I'm 45. I had a, a hysterectomy. I still have one ovary, but I think it's like ready to retire. That's <laughs> so, <laughs> what I like yeah. to say. But um, but yeah, I'm right here with you having some of these symptoms and I understand how distressing that they can be. And but what I'm learning is that so um, you know, again, you mentioned uh, perimenopause perimenopause can bring up a lot of depression. And, you know, this can happen for people who've never even experienced depression before. It can be quite alarming and distressing. If you go to your doctor, at least in the U.S., uh, the first thing they're going to do is say, oh, we'll just give you a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an SSRI, which is a classic uh, antidepressant, right? Maybe, um, you know, some of them have an anti-anxiety component built into them as well. And these are these are great medications. I, I don't hold anything against them. I, and if you're on a medication and it's working for you and you're feeling good, then that's great. I don't want you to stop your medications and especially not without talking to your doctor and doing that in a really safe way. That's my disclaimer before I start talking about this. Exactly. Um, and I'm not a doctor, so I can't give medical advice. So anyway, um, with uh, with with SSRIs, though, I do have a concern with um, throwing all these people in perimenopause on SSRIs because another classic symptom of perimenopause can be low libido. And so, you know, are we are we taking an SSRI and then, um, you know, exacerbating another symptom of menopause just to help with one? 
The other issue that I have with SSRIs is that, so they blunt your mood, right? And so not only do they blunt your lows, which is what we're aiming for, but they're going to also blunt your highs. That's just how they work. And then I, I, you know, I'm concerned about people not being able to lean into their joys as much and feeling very blunted. What we know about psilocybin now through survey research is that instead of blunting people's moods, psilocybin tends to make people feel more okay with their highs and lows, which is a really cool thing when you think about it. Like, what if we just felt more okay with having the occasional um, mood plummet or fluctuation throughout the day, knowing we're gonna, going to get through it, knowing those joys will come back, yeah. you know? I think that's the better way to go about it. Um, yeah. and, you know, and then we also have to consider that, you know, you take an SSRI, you have to take that every day to make it work, right? Um, psilocybin, you don't have to do that. So, um, you know, you can do what we're learning through research is that you could do a psilocybin journey and have beneficial effects potentially on your depression symptoms for even up to, sorry, I dropped my AirPod. For even up to, for even up to a year, um, you could have some beneficial effects related to tamping down that depression, which is pretty amazing when wow. you think about it. Because you could do this, not have side effects mm -hmm. other than your experience while you're journeying, and then you know you're you, you feel generally good, and you're learning from your psilocybin experience. Whereas with SSRIs. You do have to take them every day. They have multiple side effects. Plus, they're very difficult to get off of. I have personal experience with trying to get off of an SSRI weaning off. It's it doesn't feel great. No. It's not fun. I don't want to scare anyone away no, no. from you know tapering if that's what they're planning to do and working with with their doctors to do that, of course. But it is a, it can be a challenge. Um, and then, you know, getting into the the sexual, uh, the female sexual dysfunction topic. So again. Um, SSRIs can really uh, impact your female sexual dysfunction. I mean, they can they can exacerbate oh, yes. female sexual dysfunction or bring it on in the first place. And that could encompass many things like low libido, um, uh, inability to orgasm, pain with intercourse. There's so many different things that sexual dysfunction can encompass for a female. Yes. But what we're learning with um, psilocybin, so it's not like you're going to take psilocybin and like think, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm yeah, feeling no, really no. flirty and funky, you know. <laughs> and so it's not a classic aphrodisiac. No. But um, what it what we do know is that two things can be protective against female sexual dysfunction. No guarantees here, but they are. Um, having good intimate partner communication, yes. and then also having a positive body image. So psilocybin is being studied for body image through clinical trials on eating disorders. Um, we're further along with, I mean, there are like 11 types of eating disorders out there, but we're further along with studying, um, I believe, anorexia nervosa, and now I think a bit about binge eating disorder too. But what we're learning is that there's a lot more rigidity present in the brain when you have some a type of eating disorder or disordered eating. Um, there's some rigidity in the angular gyrus. And so psilocybin is being is potentially lessening some of that rigidity. And we're having some beneficial effects in clinical trials for something like, um, you know, anorexia nervosa in improving body image, really like our in internal states of awareness of the body. And so, so there's, there's potential there that because of that, this could disrupt um, female sexual dysfunction. And then the other thing to consider is that um, I, I mentioned intimate partner communication. So there's another cool concept in terms of why psilocybin tends to work for various conditions. 
And this is called oceanic boundlessness. And it describes the way that we can feel connected when we're on a psychedelic to like um, the whole universe, to nature, to other people, like an increased sense of connectedness. So you've heard about that. I've heard about that. So oceanic boundlessness. Okay, good. Yeah. Oceanic boundlessness is a term that comes from, it's actually like a term that was shared between a French mystic and Freud. So unrelated to psychedelics, <laughs> it, it came out of that. But it, again, it describes this concept of really feeling a deeper connection. And what's happening and why that happens is that there's something in our brains, there's a network of brain regions that work together called the default mode network. And they, they're concerned, it's concerned with our sense of self, our autobiographical info, um, you know, just kind of everything that encompasses us and who we are. Yeah. When we use psilocybin, parts of that network um, that normally connect will disconnect and other parts that don't normally connect will connect. So it's almost like if we we all can think of that outlet in our house where we've got like the power strip and all the things plugged in, right? <laughs> if you were to take a bunch of those cords and unplug them and put them in, plug them in in different ways, this is what's happening what? when you're on psilocybin. Yeah. But what's really cool about this is that there's a concept called ego death. And that can sound really scary. But what it's really saying is that for a little while there, when you're on psilocybin, your ego kind of dissolves and you're more you're more connected to the rest of the world because you're less focused so much on you, which I'm not saying that's a selfish thing to be, you know, concerned with yourself. We're all like that. We all have a sense of self and it encompasses our whole day. Right. So to disconnect from that a little bit and connect to the rest of the world and can be really profound. And so something that happened for me during my psilocybin journey was that um, I felt like I was connected by threads of light to everyone that I know and love. And I could feel their love coming to me. And I was sending love out to them. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life to feel that because so many times we know we have a support system out there. Um, you know, our friends and family, we know they support us. But to feel it in your body is a whole different ball game. It was life changing for me to really feel that. And so, you know, I was doing my journey on my own with a with a guide. And but not, you know, I didn't have my husband with me or anything. But I came back home and it's not like he did anything different. He wasn't doing solo assignment. <laughs> but I felt exponentially more connected to him uh, in some really bizarre way. It was wow. like, you know, we weren't having marital problems or anything. But I was like, you know, I really like you. <laughs> And we've been married for 10 years, right? So, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay. oh, that's great. So, you know, I don't think couples have to go and do this together. I think it could be something that a woman who maybe yeah. is struggling with some body image issues or connectivity issues, maybe has some walls up. If you go and do this on your own with a, with a guide or a therapist, you come back, you're going to feel exponentially more connected to your partner. Um, and I can't, I can't say from a personal perspective regarding like the sexual dysfunction, because I wasn't experiencing that, but I can see how that could potentially facilitate a little, the intimate partner communication could facilitate more confidence in the bedroom, um, just a general feeling of letting down yeah. some of those walls that we carry. Oh. So yeah, I think that's a really um, good, con- you know, connection with female sexual dysfunction. And then the third thing regarding to men- regarding menopause, yes. and again, I'll, I'll shut my mouth. <laughs> but the third thing that I wanted to talk about is trauma. You, you brought up trauma yes. earlier. And I think it's a really important concept yes. when we talk about menopause, yeah. because um, a lot of people don't realize this. But if you've had adverse childhood experiences in your life, and I'll talk about what those are in a second, 
But essentially, if you've had trauma in your life, which I mean, who hasn't had some trauma, it um, it actually can exacerbate your menopause symptoms. Yes. And so, you know, I don't think the mainstream medical community is really thinking about this. Um, you know, it's not like you go to your doctor and you're like, I'm having all these menopause symptoms. And then they ask you about your whole life. They no. don't even consider <laughs> that. But it is a huge factor. And so ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, and they um, that can encompass a lot of different things yeah. like abuse, neglect, um, a really volatile divorce or just volatile household in general, um, poverty, systemic racism in your community, living yeah. through a natural disaster or a man-made disaster or whatever it might be. There's so much trauma out there. Yes. So one in six adults has had four or more oh, yeah. adverse childhood yes. experiences. And if you've had four or more adverse childhood experiences, that is more likely to make your menopause symptoms worse. And that is just so fascinating. And it, you know, it likely stems from the fact that when we have an adverse childhood experience as a, as a kid, obviously, uh, it physically changes our stress response, meaning how we manage cortisol, how we manage yep. glucose related to all of that in our fight or flight system. And that fight or flight system can just sort of get jacked up, you know, and turned yeah. on and be on all the time rather than tapping into what the opposite system, which is our more of our rest and digest system. You know, these, mm-hmm. these aren't always working in opposite opposition, but they tend to. Yes. And so if we can tap back into that rest and digest system, that kind of helps turn off that fight or flight. And we're seeing that psilocybin has the potential to do this. So in in research thus far, we've learned that um, that with adverse childhood experiences, psilocybin lessens that psychological response to them. So we don't have studies on does that translate to like better menopause symptoms, but I believe it could help, yeah, you know, definitely. and definitely. yeah. And then, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about metabolic health before we jumped on the show here. And um, you know, this is all tied to our metabolic health, meaning like how we do manage glucose and, and insulin and all of that in our bodies. And so that gets altered in that stress, that change yes. to the stress response. And we know that people who have had trauma uh, are predispositioned to worsened metabolic health. That doesn't mean you can't change it, but um, meaning that you're more at risk for things like obesity, depression, um, uh, heart disease, um, type two diabetes, yes. all of these yeah. things. And so that's what I'm thinking is the mechanism that could potentially be exacerbating yes. menopause symptoms, because we also know that worsened metabolic health also impacts our menopause symptoms. So it's just so important to consider a woman's entire life when thinking about perimenopause and menopause. Yeah. But I do see psilocybin as potentially being able to help with that. I think that's that would be fantastic because I think AC, ACEs are just sort of left hanging out there a lot of the time. And of course, we yeah. know that communities where these things are more prevalent, then women have longer and more severe menopause symptoms. And we know that's true among mm-hmm. Black and Latino women where there may have mm-hmm. potentially been more ACEs in their childhood because of poverty and other difficulties and into they intergenerational parts of what they're carrying. So, you know, we know that's true. So that would be a phenomenal way forward. But so many people have been exposed to some of the factors that you meant. And we know, and I know many, many women are struggling with SSRIs. They're not working for them. They're making them feel metabolically worse. 
even though they're yes. even though their depressive symptoms may be under a certain amount of control, then then they certainly are noticing other factors. And, and obviously that metabolic health can flow through to things like gut inflammation, which its own turn is impacting the brain. So that there is mm -hmm. a, you know, a lot that could be sort of changed if psilocybin really could break through for menopausal women. I think I think it's wonderful. And I mean, at this stage we don't do we or don't we know how psilocybin works with hormone replacement therapy, how the two are working together and complement each other. Is that still studies to be yeah. done? That is something that researchers need to study, hint, hint, you know. Um, so, but I, I hope that they do. And I really do think that they will. I think with psilocybin and psychedelics in general, we've got a different breed of researchers working on this. They're, you know, they've all, many of them have gone through psilocybin experiences or other psychedelic experiences. They have very open minds about studying this yeah. stuff. And they're thinking, they're thinking less in terms of, hey, let's treat everyone as even women as little men, you know, <laughs> they're thinking, hey, these are separate silos, we need to investigate it for each individual, yeah. you know, for each, um, you know, female, for male, and, you know, even beyond that, thinking about it, not in terms of non-binary as well. So I'm really excited about the way that psilocybin and other psychedelics may be even changing the paradigm in research and that we may actually get more studies on women's health very specifically. Good, good, good. good. That makes me happy. I know, right? Maybe a final question too for you is, okay, so people are hearing this and we, we obviously both of us think this is fantastic, but are there actually any safety concerns? If you're a, someone on the outside, you're less familiar with them, maybe you still mm -hmm. live in a country where there's lots of barriers up there whatever reason, maybe patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what if any safety concerns should people be aware of? Yeah. So I think that is an important question. And, and we tend to talk about psilocybin as this very safe substance. And it, it is a relatively safe substance, but there are safety considerations related to that. Um, but just talking about that in general, um, you know, when people come to psilocybin or psychedelic without any other prior knowledge about it there's this concern like could i overdose you know that sort of thing and you know overdosing in terms of like an opioid you know that could uh kill you obviously yeah, yeah. psilocybin we don't really have deaths related to that there are only two instances and in, in you know all of the research of a potential death related to psilocybin and both of those were in people who had like severe heart conditions so that is a concern and i do want to bring that up um so in terms of safety i have a whole safety chapter in my book and i think that's really important to have but um uh, if you have a heart condition, uh, you need to be aware that psilocybin will elevate your blood pressure a little bit and um, elevate your heart rate too. And so it's not, that doesn't mean that you can't try psilocybin, but I would say if you have an underlying condition, that is even more reason to work with um, a, a health professional, preferably someone knowledgeable about these things, knowledgeable about your conditions to make sure that you're being monitored while you're on psilocybin. And likewise, if you have any chronic condition that requires management during your journey, so that could be if you have type 1 diabetes and you need to administer insulin, all of that. Um, for, for me, like I have asthma. What if I had an asthma attack yes, or something? Yes. You know, you need someone there to really help you manage your chronic condition. So I always want to make sure people are safe with that. If you have a mental health condition, um, you know, things like, uh, especially a, a personality disorder, so something that where psychoses could be present, yes. 
Um, that is a reason to stop, talk to a mental health professional first to see if it's safe. Um, generally, if you have a mood disorder like that, um, or I should say a personality disorder, you're often disqualified from from going through like a clinical trial. Yes. But clinical trials are you are are also studying those very populations for people who do have personality disorders. And so we're trying to gain more information about that and safety information related to that. We just don't have enough out yeah. there right now. Yeah. But I think it's really important that, you know, think about your underlying conditions and your medications. Talk to a medical professional if you feel safe to do that with the medical professional and then gauge the safety for yourself. Again, whole safety chapter in there. The other thing that I want to bring up too in regards to safety and, um, you know, especially for women, so sexual assault disproportionately affects women, although it's underreported and men, of course. Um, We need to be thinking about sexual assault in psychedelic settings. So sexual assault happens in every industry. It's not a surprise that it happens in the psychedelic industry as well. But there have been real cases out there where uh, people have been sexually assaulted in um, sessions with therapists, sessions with underground guides, sessions with retreat facilitators, yeah, yeah. all of that. It does happen. And we can uh, we can see how, um, you know, we all know that psilocybin makes us more vulnerable, but it also makes us more suggestible. And I think that Rebus model that I described yes, at the top yes. of the show yes. really explains how you could be open to suggestibility. So conversations before you go into a psychedelic session, conversations with your therapist or whoever is your facilitator about any kind of touch is really important. Yes. So sexual touch should be completely off the table when you're working with, um, when you're the client or patient working yes, with someone, obviously. obviously. Yeah. But there might be room for therapeutic touch. You don't have to have therapeutic touch, but it may be something that would be on the table. For example, if um, something difficult came up for you during your journey. And, um, you know, a researcher was saying, or a therapist was saying, hey, would you want me to hold your hand if something comes up or just pat your hand or pat your shoulder to let you know you're still okay? Yes. Would you want that? And that conversation just needs to happen before you're in under the psychedelic because you can't consent once you're under the psychedelic. So I just want to make people really aware of that. Um, I do have a, a chapter on that as well. And um, and then I also reference in the book a podcast that goes in depth on this. And that podcast is called Cover Story Power Trip. And that was put out by New York Magazine and a woman named Dr. Lily K. Ross, who was personally sexually assaulted in a psychedelic setting. So she shares her, shares her own experience and then also shares, you know, what has been happening to a few other people. Again, I don't want that to scare people off of the psychedelic industry. Again, this happens everywhere. And it's really frustrating that it still happens, but um, it's just making people aware that, hey, you know, just because you're talking to a therapist doesn't mean that you're completely safe. We need to be having these conversations, you know, so. And setting out the boundaries of what's acceptable and what isn't for ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't want to be re-traumatizing people when they're going in for therapy (laughs) sessions to be, to work on their traumas. We don't want to re-traumatize people. No, we definitely don't. Oh, no. Jen, that has been the most fantastic conversation. And I feel like I learned so much about a subject Thank that you. I kind of, you know, had heard about, but but not really at the same time understood as fully. And I mean, there are just so many fantastic potential benefits and actually some some real emerging benefits from science. Uh, yes. It's an exciting time, I think, for what's for 
potentially out there for women to really improve their health and their well-being. Jen, where can people get hold of your book if they're saying, well, I love this, I want to learn more? Where can they do that? Yeah, so it's available anywhere books are sold. Um, you know, I always encourage people to order from their local independent bookstore if they can, but it's available anywhere. Um, if someone doesn't have it on their shelves, they can order it through all the normal channels that they order books for you. Um, and then you can find me on social media everywhere. I'm at Jen Chesek. That's J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. And, you know, feel free to DM me. I always try to answer questions. Obviously, I can't give medical advice, but I can guide you toward the right things and stuff like that. So. Oh, that has been fantastic. I want to thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me on. Was, this was such a blast. Thank a you. Pleasure. What an amazing episode that was with Jen. I am still absorbing, thinking, processing all that information that she shared around the opportunities that are there for psilocybins and other psychedelics for so many of our issues around menstruation and menopause that are currently very poorly addressed by therapy and SSRIs. Uh, the future looks bright. Next week, do join me as I am joined by wonderful uh, Susan, by, <clears throat> as I'm joined by wonderful Dr. Delia McCabe, who is uh, making a return visit to the podcast to talk about burnout and stress in midlife women and her observations of just what the post-COVID era has brought, not in a good way to us, and the steps that we can do to take better care of our mental health. Until next time, go well. <laughs>